You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Today I'm speaking live at the South by Southwest Comedy Festival in Austin, Texas, to one of the godfathers of alt comedy. This is Eugene Merman. He's the founder of his own 10-year Eugene Merman Comedy Festival, which is one of those uh, uh, ideas a comic has that then, for the joy of it, they massively overcommit to. Uh, he's released a documentary, or is releasing that very soon, uh, about the festival uh, and also some other aspects of his own life which we will go into. You might know him as uh, the voice of Gene from Bob's Burgers. You might know him from his appearances on Archer and a lot of other shows in which he plays or voices a version of himself uh, that has been created for him by the people who make those shows that love him and want him to be in them. So he's that kind of a guy. I hope you enjoy this episode. This is the brilliant and very funny Eugene Merman. So, Eugene, you are uh, here at the festival with uh, your movie... Yes. Which is premiering tonight. This is a pre-release interview, ladies and gentlemen. I trust you'll make a suitably appreciative noise. Very exciting. Yes. Uh, I'm lucky enough to have seen the movie, and uh, it's an incredible, it's a a wonderful and devastating piece of work. And uh, we'll get on to more about that in a moment. But before we do, let's place you for people listening to this at home uh, who might be less familiar with your work. Sure. What do you do? Uh, I'm a comedian. Uh, I'm. I like the. Am I going to just say that some of the stuff I'm on? Uh, is that what you mean? Not necessarily. I can't no. Tell what you're no. Okay, asking. Thank, that's perfect. I'm glad I s- said that. That's perfectly Instead reasonable. of telling you stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I suppose what I'm getting at is that the type of comedy that you do, I feel like you're in a genre of one. Oh, great. Okay. Good. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, for people who haven't seen you, what is that genre? What are the kind of type? What are the types of stand-up that you do? Uh, I don't know. I guess I bend minds with the word. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm definitely going to refer to myself as a genre of one, though. That's okay. very exciting. I feel like that's why am I? You tell me what I do. Um, I uh, God, there's a. Uh, I wish I could remember the the term he used. Uh, anyway, I, 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 Daniel Kitson told me about describing me to other people, and I I wish I could remember, uh, like, uh, 
God, I'll think of it later. This is going to be great for the interview. <laughs> anyway, he used a word that's really accurate and interesting that didn't occur to me. Anyway, good story, huh? <laughs> Well told. The type, the type of stand-up that you do is not so much uh, autobiographical or observational. You kind of seem to me to... You almost create a collage of found objects and different ways of communicating with people. And it goes beyond... I think a, a lot of people these days do comedy where they kind of reply to spam emails or, you know, in an amusing way. But you have been doing, for a very long time, you have been engaging with all sorts of different types of, you know... Uh, I'm struggling to think now immediately of an example. Um, but like the like MSN Messenger or laminating, leaving your own laminated uh, signs. signs in public bathrooms yeah. or uh, connecting with the world in yes, other ways. taking out full-page ads yeah. um, in newspapers if something bothers me. <laughs> and that, I mean, that specifically, that was... You, you I went, did it, I did that. You went very viral about a, a parking complaint in Portsmouth. Yes, yes, it's true. It, uh, what's funny is, yes, it was when Facebook used to have trends and I saw it and it was like the first trend and I just assumed what it meant was it was the number one trend among my friends. (laughs) And then I realized that like the next thing I was like, my, Oh, this is like everywhere. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I I had a parking ticket thing (laughs) that I, I I got a ticket. I was, I thought it was wrong. Uh, I paid the fine and then took out a full page ad in their summer guide. (laughs) Explaining why I was disappointed with the ticket. And is that, is that the sort of work that... That style of work, is that something that happened to you because that was what you were making, or was that what you set out to make? Uh, no, I... So I think a lot of things in general, something will happen to me, and then I... So at first I was like... This, I, was genu- I was genuinely outraged... I got a ticket for parking uh, backwards in a parking spot in a town where you could have no way of knowing you're not allowed to park backwards because some places have that law and what they do is they put a sign that says like front parking only or whatever. And uh, so I was like, you don't, there's no way to know this. And then you just, so you're just stealing money anyway. And then I made it into an ad with jokes uh, conveying my disappointment in in the town. But you've always... so. W- but, but the wh- rage came first, and then I was like, how can I turn this into a more expensive thing? <laughs> <laughs> and then also there comes, like, so I write it, and then I, you know, perform it on stage, working it out, until I'm like, I think this is the thing. And then actually reaching out. So at first I reached out to the Better Business Bureau, who published this, like, summer guide, and they were like, yeah, we'll definitely run this. And I was very surprised because they're literally the business organization of this area. And then, of course, a few days later, they were like, oh, we can't run this. And I showed it to them. I wasn't like, and there were no swears. It was all, you know, uh, or maybe one beeped swear. Anyway, but then I reached out to a different, like, summer guide, and they were like, actually, yeah, we would absolutely run this. And so they did. They, I mean, I bought an ad. I gave them money. Um, and have you, have you, I suppose what I'm getting at is when you first started out in comedy, did you know that that was the kind of work that you were going to do? No. So, oh, so, um, so it's funny. I did write some sort of like a letter to a phone company MCI in like the 90s. That was like a joke thing that I did that I then put on like some humor bulletin board or something. Um, so I've been, but no, I, uh, so, so basically, 
what I would do is, so I, I, I majored in comedy. I went to a college where you could design your own major. And so I ran this like weekly comedy show in the basement of my dorm. And what I would do is just try different sorts of stuff. And if it got laughs, it became my act. And I think that stayed with me forever. So I would do a thing on stage that I hope to be funny. And if it is, then I keep it. And it doesn't matter to me if it's holding up pictures that are a calendar I made or if it's me telling a story or a full-page ad that I took out. So it's basically trying stuff. I mean, in a sense, it's probably not dissimilar to what happens on talk shows, maybe, but I just do it as stand-up. Okay. And when you, it sounds to me like that, that kind of uh, genesis of a comedian. Were you aware of stand-up comedy in the sense that everyone else did it differently to that? Or were you kind of inventing it for yourself? I was I loved stand up as a kid meaning I watched lots of stand up and but but sort of unrelated I was like I mean I was doing stand up I am st- a stand up comic <laughs> uh in a genre of one um <laughs> but yeah so so but to me I was like if I do a thing on stage that's funny that's stand up and it's fine so so I I don't know I wasn't I was just trying to do comedy. And to me, I was like, I'm trying to do a thing that I think is very reasonable. (laughs) (laughs) It just happens to maybe be unusual, I guess. I mean, so did you have a sense at the time when you first started of how unusual that approach was? Not particularly, because I also started in the sort of mid-early 90s. And at that time, stand-up had just died. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So like... So so it was huge in the 80s, and it was everywhere you could put a microphone in the back of a coffee shop or whatever. Uh, nothing. Anyway. <laughs> uh, there was so much stand-up everywhere, and then it sort of uh, disappeared. And then I was like, I would like to do this job. Okay. And so, you know, there wasn't even, I don't know... I don't know what the goal was. I, it was just to somehow to become a comedian, I guess. So I would just do whatever I thought would work. And do you think that the fact that you, you kind of designed your own comedy course to study, yeah, did that seems to kind of resonate with the sort of unusual approach that you've always had to stand up? Well, that, I think to me it made sense. I wanted to be a comedian, so it made sense that I went to college to try to learn <laughs> to how to be a comedian and to do all the things you so meaning when I was in school I had to so I ran a weekly show I had to promote it and get people there I then did a one-hour stand-up act as my you know final project I realize now it could have been 45 minutes that would have been fine (laughs) um but you know all the things I had to do to do that are the same things I had to do to become a comedian so to me yeah I guess it's unusual but it really makes a lot of sense and did it feel unusual at the time? Did you it have any definitely, peers who were No, doing no that? one else did that at the time. I don't, since maybe, I think people have a little. Um, but no, it felt, un- I knew that it was unusual to go to college and do a one-hour stand-up act as a thesis. I, I knew that that was unusual and that I would use that th- fact to send in press releases. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And did you, you were faxing press releases to people. I was time. faxing press releases from a computer. I didn't know if it worked. It did work. <laughs> uh, because, so I, so I, yeah, I, I definitely like faxed a bunch of local papers when I was in college and like one local paper came and wrote about my thing and there was like an article and I was like, oh my God, it works. 
you can just fax people and tell them about things and with authority, and they'll be like, okay. And then I started faxing the Boston Globe uh, <laughs> when I moved to Boston. You know, little random tidbits, and sometimes it they would like there was like a thing called names and faces where they would like uh, publish like things about local like celebrities. But I wasn't a local celebrity; I was just faxing them. <laughs> And they would sometimes include little things about me, and I was like, this is really effective. I don't know if you could, you probably could still do it now, maybe yeah. a little, I don't know. Maybe you get in a blog, I don't know. I just, I wonder if that was the beginning of that fascination of yours with interacting with the world in surprising ways. Yes. Like but, to start off going, oh, you can fax some information, you can make something up and send it in. And I definitely once faxed the thing that was like, I think I said that Aerosmith was doing a, a benefit for hands. <laughs> and then they were like, what is this? And I was like, I don't know, I'm just faxing stuff. <laughs> they luckily still would like write the re- things that were true. Uh, but, but it definitely like made no sense <laughs> that I was sending random things to people. And then I would also send real information. Like I would be like, I'm doing a show and you should write about this because there's a scene that's exploding in Boston. And it was, like, partially true, if you look in hindsight. Okay. Because uh, all those people went on to have shows and stuff. Okay. So I'm trying to get a sense of the person you were when you were doing that, the, the, the teenager you were, the young man you were. And I suppose on the basis of the work of yours that I've seen, and I saw you live in Edinburgh maybe 10 or so years ago. Yeah, maybe probably. No, probably, like, it must have been five, 2005 or so. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I remember that really, that stood out. That I remember that the, the particular joke I remember from that set was the one about um, the setting the security question yes. when you ring the bank. And I don't want to, I'm not going to murder the, your bit. But, uh, you know, that, that really stuck in my mind as a kind of like a, a means of engaging with the world. So I suppose because the type of comedy that I always saw you do was kind of um, nerdy. Yeah, sure. You know? Thank uh, you for raising your eyebrow, but yeah, that's fair. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm really pleased you, you saw that. I don't want yeah, to yeah, yeah. yeah. Bandy that term around, but... Um, Nerdy, a genre of one. Yeah. <laughs> can't, can't wait to bring this to the Soho Theater. <laughs> so I'm interested particularly in... There was something H. John Benjamin said about you in the documentary yeah. where he describes the first time he met you that you yes. walked into a restaurant that he was eating so, so, in so, and, and, you, and you picked a pork chop off his plate and ate it. Yes. Yeah, so, which so seems at odds with the idea of you that I had. So, so um, well, first of all, what, what he leaves out is that w- there was a comedy show before that that we were all at. And it's true that I'd maybe, I don't know if I'd met him yet at that time, but he was making a TV show with Lauren Bouchard who makes Bob's Burgers. And, um, and he, I think the club owner had convinced him to perform. And so he went out th- up throughout the night um, <laughs> trying to, what was it? I think he was, he was pretended to be a local radio DJ who was going to give an award for the worst act of the night. Um, and <laughs> he would, you know, and, and he was also making a show at the time. He was making home movies with Brendan Small, who was my roommate at the time. And so then they all went to a restaurant after. And I actually went to the restaurant, and they, they had, the kitchen had closed. And so I went across the street, got French fries, and came back with French fries. And then this was like a very nice restaurant, like one of the first nice restaurants I think I'd been to. And they were famous for a Cuban sandwich. And I think the owner came out then, like made, because they were friends with okay. John and Lauren, and made a plate of uh, Cuban sandwiches. 
and I think I did take one of so what I did I think is take one of those sandwiches and do what John said, which is I think I bit it and said this is unacceptable and like <laughs> threw it down. But in storm out, we all hung out like okay. uh, you know. <laughs> so so it's not so uh, yeah I did a bit not exactly the bit that, that I sure. think that he remembers, but I but or maybe you know one of us is 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 probably right. Um, but I believe it was a sandwich that, that uh, a plate of sandwiches, delicious sandwiches <laughs> that I threw and said, this is totally unacceptable. Just one of them. And then probably ate the next. It just, it's, it just seemed to me that that kind of like making people laugh through outrageous behavior yeah. in, in, in the real world, actually yes. interacting with real people and, you know, whoever was sitting around, yep. um, that, that seems, uh, I hadn't seen that, uh, element of you in yeah. your stage work was there yes. like that kind of it was sort of seemed like a wilder kind of more outrageous yeah note. i mean i i you know yeah i i think sometimes meaning i i yes i do silly things sometimes is the answer to that i don't know what the question is i suppose the i suppose the question is i'm trying to get a sense of who you were at the at the start of your professional comedy career and the type of person uh, that you were Whether oh you, uh, i think always, i was oh i mean i didn't uh I think I was mildly gregarious, um, would be maybe a way to put it. I don't know. Um, I think I mostly was just, well, in that instance, I was like with friends and then also John, who I didn't know at the time. Um, but I guess I was mostly just trying to figure out anything I could do to become a comedian. That wasn't part of it. Like, meaning that was just a random thing that I did. Sure. Okay. Um, if that makes sense. Okay. And do you remember the first chunk of material, the first bit you had, which you really felt like a professional comedian? Um, I, you know, I, I, I mean, I had jokes that I, that I remember. Um, God. Meaning, like, and there's one in the movie where my very first joke that I ever wrote was, uh, God, what was it? Um what profession do you think has the highest suicide rate? Most people think it's dentists, but it's actually kamikaze pilots. <laughs> That's... As, That's uh, 18-year-old me. I have to say, as a very first joke that you wrote, that really stands up. It's like a, yeah, it's a, so, so I feel like... But I would like... Uh, so the difference was that I had what, my five, ten minutes or whatever, and for a long time I just did the same jokes. Like, it was very hard to, you know, come up with jokes. And then I and so actually having to do this hour, um, I then had to just write bits and try stuff and do all sorts of things. And though I don't remember tons of it, I definitely had elements of... The, you know, I did some bit in, with a guitar. I, I just did... Not, not like I could play, like meaning like it was like fake noise art um and uh yeah just i tried all sorts of different things and it, it peppered with random little jokes and stories and do you remember your process for coming up with that stuff was it just a case of taking things on stage and trying them or were you heavily sitting and writing uh both meaning i would come up with an idea and then i would write it out and then i would try it and then i would fix it it's all you know to me comedy has a lot in common with like science you know there is a lot of trial and error and then eventually if you get a thing that works it largely works in front of most audiences um i I find so in the movie uh one of the centerpieces of the movie is uh your eugene merman comedy festival yes can you tell us a bit about the the genesis of that so the festival was something that me... So Julie Smith, uh, who's a friend of mine and directed the movie and produced the festival for, for a decade, um, uh, 
her and I ran this weekly comedy show in in Brooklyn with for a few years. Michael Showalter did it with us, and then he was like, "I don't like performing." <laughs> uh, and then so we kept doing the show. It was you know a few blocks from our, where we lived. Um, and one day after a show, me and her and Mike Birbiglia and you know we would all hang, comics would hang out after. And I was joking around. I don't know what I saw, but I saw something that made me think that it, it, jokingly I went, I'm going to do a Eugene Merman comedy festival. Um, and then uh, we all had a laugh. And then she was like, oh, maybe we should. And I was like, I don't really want that. Like, I don't want to, I don't want it to be by, like, maybe we could get, I think at the time I was like, maybe it could be the Eugene Merman and John Benjamin comedy festival. <laughs> like, I didn't want a weird thing, though it was funny. And we all laughed, and then we were like, it, the funnier joke is if you made it you. <laughs> <laughs> and so we uh, did. Uh, so we did it once, and it was really fun. And then we then, like, and it was a lot of work. And then after, like, six months, we were like, I guess maybe we'll do it again. And then we did it for ten years. So... I mean, the, I mean, that is, uh, yeah, I, I felt like people were moved to applaud at that, and I think you should, because that is an extraordinary... That is an extraordinary... The best applause is yeah. coaxed. <laughs> That's what I find. I think that is an extraordinary commitment to a joke. Yes, <laughs> it, is, it is a pretty, pretty good commitment to a joke. I think a lot of comics probably have post-gig ideas like, wouldn't it be funny if someone did this? Yeah. And actually to follow through with that on such a scale yeah. is fairly unusual. Yes, I guess, again, I guess, like, to be I'm like, seems to make sense. But yeah, it was also every year months and months of work to do this ridiculous thing. Um, but it also was very fun, you know, and it was, and I think I've always enjoyed doing things that create a, a sort of feeling of community. Um, and a lot of, you know, I've always sort of enjoyed being part of running shows and, and doing that sort of thing. Um, Something yeah. Michael Showalter says uh, in the movie is that a lot of the other comics at the time, there was a sense that, that he felt that a lot of the comics were doing stand-up whilst they went for castings for things. They were doing stand-up in order to do something else. Yes. And you were very distinct from that. It's true that I never, like... Like I never went out to pilot season or any of that sort of thing, um, and the, and I was on shows and am on shows, but again, it's largely working with friends. You know, most of the stuff that I've done is friends of mine who've been like, "Would you like to play a character named Eugene or Gene <laughs> or Evgeny or something?" And I'm like, "Yeah, that sounds nice. That sounds good. I'll do that." Um, while pursuing stand-up and, like, putting out records and making specials and that sort of thing. And, you know, and I, you know, pitching shows occasionally and making pilots and now a movie. Do you find stand-up difficult? Do you, uh, find, do you find it hard to make the ideas that you have funny? Or did you? Has that become easier? Both. Um, yeah, uh, yeah I, find it, I find it to be a lot of work. But when it works, it's so enjoyable. Um, but yeah, but I know like comics, like somebody like asked me yesterday if I wanted to do a set and I was like, no, not really. And like a lot of comics are like, I can't imagine not wanting to go on stage. I'm like, oh, I can. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I, th- there is nothing sort of as enjoyable as thinking of an idea, especially like some weird idea. Like I once did a bit and I think it's on a Comedy Central half hour and probably my first album where I made advertisements for Shapes. Yeah, yeah. And 
And I remember making these things and then bringing them on stage and having people laugh and just being like, well, that is very enjoyable. Like, meaning the idea that you have this ludicrous, strange idea that sort of doesn't make sense and then totally makes sense and totally works. It's, yeah, that's like, that's, a, that's thrilling. The the absurdity that you that you excel at is like one of the, one of those shapes. What the one that uh, I remember is um, is it rec- rectangles the other square? Or square? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. The, yeah, the other square or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> or square the other rectangle. Probably. I don't know. Like, what's the logic of it? I can't remember. <laughs> I remember that. Uh, uh, yeah, that there's a fucked up a gone, and its slogan was "Let's party." <laughs> Yeah, or, or similarly, um, uh, your line about uh, freedom—the the slogan you were coming up with. Oh yeah, for I did. For t- yeah, for <laughs> yes, was it for the tea? Because I think I joined a tea party website for some reason. I think like I saw some ad and then was like, I think it was the Don't Tread on Me, which I thought was really funny. And then I uploaded a lot of like made ads and uploaded them, hoping that they would take off in the Tea Party community. They did not. But I think it was stuff like, uh, oh, like Obama, like I can't remember, like Obama is like chamomile and wear oolong tea. I can't remember. Like it was like you the, one, know. the one that particularly sticks in my mind was freedom. You can come on its face. It likes it. <laughs> I do believe that was one of them. <laughs> so yeah. So, but in terms of when you are coming up, <laughs> like how do you draft that? Is that is that a finished idea that you're like, okay, I'm definitely going to do that one because you're the absurdity that you have. It's not just random, and I think when, right. when people like the idea of the audience as to, oh, that's so random, that's so surreal. Yeah. It is crafted. There are decisions made. So I just yes. wanted to, you to talk a bit about those decisions. So yeah, I think it is specifically. I mean, yeah, it isn't random in the sense that the things that are, yeah, you have to craft a, a thing that sounds random but actually is quote evocative. It's a funny way to describe that joke. Um, <laughs> but also, uh, you know, I probably had you know a bunch of other things that I tried, and uh, you know, and some worked, or some say some work half the time, and then you sort of get rid of them and try other stuff. And then the freedom one really, really, really stuck. Uh, but yeah a lot of it is trial and error so like especially the things where I have like I I know that my shapes bit or that ended up with whatever it is five or ten you know it ends up probably with around five or six things generally and uh, but I probably tried ten or twenty or who knows how many to be like these are the ones that work um yeah and are you able to when trying material and not just now but over the course of your career when trying something when you are having an idea as absurd as that 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 must be a leap of faith for the first performance of it yes yeah there's definitely you don't know what you know yeah there's the anxiety because you can always fail that's the nice thing about stand-up um, <laughs> let's so, look into that sentence of it yeah yeah so so like yeah you try a new joke or you try a thing and it could easily not work um and you know then you try it again or you f- think about it and you change a thing. Sometimes it's a word. Sometimes, you know, it's you have to write 30 punchlines to find the five that work. Um, yeah, so it's so a lot of it is just trial and error. But sometimes the concept itself, I feel like generally the concept itself ends up working out, meaning like when I t- bought an ad in a paper, I had read a letter different versions of it with different jokes over and over and over on stage so i knew that 
it worked and then publishing it and reading it from the newspaper is that much better okay and is and is there when you're on stage i think that's one of the things that most one of the reasons a lot of regular people don't become comedians is the fear of failure so did you that anxiety about failing yes. on stage are you now comfortable with trying something and it failing is that ever uncomfortable still yeah no one in, in if failing isn't as enjoyable as i'm making it sound um <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's yeah, uh, it's fine. Meaning that's the process. There's no version where you try something and it and it. I mean, it, you can try something and it might work. But there's no version where there's isn't the risk of it failing. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So I yeah, and I still get. I'm, I don't get angry. Like the first time I did stand up, I was shaking as I spoke. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you couldn't really see me shaking, uh, but I. Meaning I have a video of it. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I was super anxious. And then in general, you know, I always am a little uh, anxious. But I think to a kind of healthy, meaning I think it's good to be a little nervous. Okay. Because I think it, um, yeah, you're just that much more present. Is that, is that right? You're more, that's an interesting... I've not heard anyone say that before. You're more present if you're a bit nervous? Like you're not well, overconfident? Before and then as you get... I Maybe as it, it gets going, you get less nervous? I don't know. And how did you deal emotionally with the failures? I would tell myself that I was a terrible person and that no one liked... No. Uh. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's not that. That's know, not I that know. unbelievable in the I realm know, of comedy. Yes. <laughs> I've oh, I would internalize it um, because that's what's healthy. <laughs> Um, I would deal with it by being initially sad and then excited to sort of fix it and figure it out. Um, and also the way you now, you know, largely when I try things is, and I think most comics do this, is you do a few things that work that you kind of know work or a few maybe, you know, newer but slightly older jokes that aren't like on a special or anything. And then you try new stuff, you know, because you want to give it a chance. Um yeah, and that, or you can, you know, at a lot of places, I mean, there's so many rooms where you can try things that are, like, low stakes. Um, so, yeah. Have there been any drawbacks to your style of presenting found objects and things like that? <laughs> um, the, yeah, I mean, the drawback is that I carry a bunch of random things and supposed <laughs> to just standing on stage and talking like a normal comic should. <laughs> so I have, like... Um, yeah, so there's like, you know, especially if there's like tech bits that involve, like I have, I had a thing that I was doing for a while with an Alexa, uh, when it first sort of came out, um, where I programmed it. I actually made an app, though now I can't get it to work, but I'd made an app where it could, uh, give you advice. I learned like JavaScript. I really took it to like a strange <laughs> level and then, but I didn't learn it enough to figure out how to do it once the, the like, software updated like meaning like once the javascript however you make a thing but i created like a like some amazon like whatever java storage account i this is a tech person is hearing this and being like you don't know what you're talking about you did not learn java i learned enough to make a thing that when i said like alexa asked eugene for advice it would just be like whatever never throw your dick in a river whatever it would say like and then a calendar, and you could make to-do lists. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> but um, I have I ha- to carry all that stuff around. Not only that, 
I bought a Wi-Fi, like a MiFi thing, because as I was traveling, connecting to the Wi-Fi of random places became too inconvenient and too, like, it wouldn't work. So I was like, all right, I guess I have to buy a hotspot that I travel with for this dumb bit. So that's a drawback. Um, even that, my uh, I had a follow-up question, but the idea of throwing your dick into a river has just completely <laughs> smashed it out of my mind. So this is Eugene. He, he, it's great fun talking to him. Um, I think there are some comics for whom the live process is more or less uh, useful in terms of getting to the heart of uh, what they want uh, to talk about, uh, but I really enjoyed speaking to Eugene and I'm very grateful to everyone at South by Southwest for having us. A uh, big shout out to Charlie and Danny and everyone who was at the hideout and everyone who drank coffee there throughout the proceedings. And um, we'll get back to this one in just a moment. Um, just time to say a quick hello to some ComCom pod fans who were at a, a corporate gig I did last night. Um, I hosted the PR Moment Awards, which is a, a staggeringly uh, glittering and glitzy affair, and uh, for which I wore my new tux with an actually real bow tie, which I started learning to tie uh, maybe an hour before the show and finished learning to tie maybe five minutes before the show. It was quite an intense experience. Um, but hello to uh, Phil, who tweeted me afterwards, and hello to Alex, who said hello on the night, and uh, hello to Nick, who wins because he is a completist who was and also won a PR award, so uh, well done, Nick. Um, but it was very, very fun to be on stage in a sort of different aspect of the life of a comedian <laughs> wearing the monkey suit and announcing some 39 awards uh, and then have the person on stage next to me who I'm shaking hands with for the hundredth time uh, then turn to me and say oh big fan of the podcast I've heard them all <laughs> put a real spring in my step and it really made me reflect on uh, how much I value uh, all of you ComCom pod fans um, and it's very satisfying to think now that whilst I'm doing a thing completely unrelated to the podcast there's the the uh, what the scope of this show, the breadth of the listenership is sufficient that I bump into you in all sorts of strange places. So thank you uh, to you three uh, and anyone else who might have been uh, watching me do other things than ComCom over the last few weeks. And um, I'm on my way to Reading tonight. By the time you hear this, that one will be uh, long gone. But if you would like to come and see me on tour, it's comedianscomedian.com slash tour. There's about 12 or so dates left in this leg. And then, of course, we return in autumn for a much longer tour. Uh, any day now, I'm going to do a proper launch of my uh, my show Primer, which is going to be my work in progress show at the Edinburgh Festival this year. We haven't quite signed off on all of the final details of that, but I can't wait to tell you about it. And of course, we're going to, uh, you're going to get the chance to see me if you're in London. I'm coming to the Soho Theatre from the 9th to the 11th of May. All of those uh, tickets and links and stuff available via comedianscomedian.com slash tour. Um, I will chat to you a little bit more after this. I think that's all I need to tell you for now. Uh, let's get back to the brilliant Eugene Merman. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. What do you consider to be your strengths as a comic? Um, I guess s- silly, silly stuff. And, I don't know, sort of... Uh, yeah, I don't know. What would you What would you consider? It's much better asking someone for me. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I sort of probably w- warm silliness. Yeah, I, well, I, I think, guess that's my style. I think the two things that have particularly come up thus far are the ability. I mean, you do sound like you are able to cope with the failures in a very positive way that presumably helps you risk more. Uh. Maybe. I mean, I think all stand-ups... I'm not describing a thing that's unique to me, meaning, like, all stand-ups try jokes and then they work on them and then they uh, get get them working or get rid of them. Um, sure. And but- I would also feel very bad. Like, meaning, in especially when you're first starting out, you have a bad set. You, if I've only performed ten times and, like, 50% of those experiences are terrible, you know, that's a, that's a really, you know, bad ratio. Um, and then as you do it, like I've now done stand up for 20 something years. So, so like if I fail, it's fine. I mean, it makes me very sad and it's a terrible feeling. Does it um, still? Oh yeah. Yeah. Why would it, it would be funny if I was like, well now I really love it. No, uh, <laughs> no sure. But you, you'd be, we, uh, you could, one might expect that you would say, uh, oh now I just take it in my stride. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't like, I, I mean, I was very, like, meaning I started wanting to be a comedian at, like, 18, you know. So I sort of was like, well, this is what I'm going to do. So there was, so I, but I just didn't know to what degree or what that meant. So uh, it's not that I, I don't know if I take it in stride, meaning I think everyone feels bad after a bad set. I think that must be a thing all comedians say. Maybe some are fine. Oh know. no! I'm nearly. I think almost everyone I've spoken to feels bad after a bad set. I just yeah, feel. Yeah. I just felt like the way you were describing it, you seemed like you were quite happy processing it and not. Oh, not uh, letting it keep you awake at night ever. Oh no! I. Uh, I mean, uh, no, it doesn't keep me awake at night. <laughs> I'm like, those are the standards. <laughs> like the standard is like, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I feel bad and I try to figure out how to fix it. I mean, I okay. think that's the that's that's sort of it's a puzzle to me, because I if I think I have an idea that should work, then figuring out how to get it to work is a fun puzzle to solve. Sure, and so, that, so that's how I, think I that's, see it. I think that's a really healthy, productive way to see it. Like I, I don't think all comedians share that the idea that like, oh, if it didn't work, well, that's that's actually more fun for me to solve the puzzle. Right, though. Also, I've had jokes, and there's one in the movie uh, that I talk about. Um, when I was in third grade, when I was in third grade, when I was when I was in elementary school, um, uh, I had a teacher who told a friend of mine to not 
to not be my friend because I was a loser. <laughs> really funny, right? I mean, terrible, but really funny. And, and it took me uh, several years to figure out how to turn that sad but very funny thing into a joke that worked and made people laugh instead of go like, ooh. <laughs> and what um, was it? What was that? What was it that in that? What it was, was the figuring out the breakthrough was that to, because to me partially like that piece of information is sort of funny and, and traumatic. Um, the, the part of it was figuring because she also showed <laughs> test scores of mine to my friend to prove I was a loser. And this is the 80s, people. Like, and so I think it was then being like, what in the, like, I get that there's like a test that could show you're bad at math, but what's a test that proves you're a loser? And then I came up with questions of a, that, uh, to ask me that, uh, that would prove I was a loser. <laughs> so that was the process. But it took me a long time to take this true sad thing and then add a joke on it that made people laugh. And that, I suppose, that's kind of representative of the puzzle. Yeah. Like, there we go. I've got the beginnings of something. Yeah, yeah, but it's not enough to get on stage and be like, here's a trauma. What do you guys think? Pretty funny, right? <laughs> you have to figure out the joke part of the trauma. And, and, then, and then people can really enjoy it. Because to me, the trauma is, I mean, it's, ob- it's funny because it's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in that idea of, um, like, working out the premise of that joke. I, I sort of, comics talk in terms of, the premise of a joke being the the platform on which you can find the the funny yeah. idea in it. Um, do you have any kind of writing or creative techniques for when you're stuck, for when you need to get over a hurdle? Um. Well, I mean, there's there's also starting from something and starting from nothing. Meaning, if I'm trying to figure out ads for shapes, I have to think of shapes and then ads. <laughs> but to think of the idea of ads for shapes is yeah. the hurdle. Yeah. So, okay. But that also came from the fact that there were at the time so many. Uh, there was like pork had ads and milk and cheese. There were just these industries that were like, "Don't forget about cheese." <laughs> and and I thought it was really funny that there were like industries, and that's what made gave me the idea of shape of ads for shapes. Um, so I think, so, or like, I get a parking ticket and I'll be really angry. Uh, to maybe a disproportionate degree to what the, the it should be. I mean, it, it was unfair, but I... Uh, and then I was like, oh, I should maybe write a letter. And then I was like, oh, I should take out an ad. And I was like, oh, it should be in their summer guide. And that whole process was also like two or three years. Okay. Meaning like I did the thing and then I... Like I wrote the letter and then I... Uh, and then it was a while before I came to them and talked to some and like talked to a person in the town and like sent them the ad. So the so the creative process is almost in two very distinct parts of sourcing the thing or kind of yeah. finding or being hit with the inspiration for the concept, and then the concept allows you to not be staring at a blank page. It kind of gives you yes, and then I just try things. So like once I had the idea that I'm going to write a letter, uh, then I'm just writing what I think is. It also has to like explain it, and then all the parts have to be funny. It can't be like too exposition-y. Because I think I had, even in that letter, like lots of things that I had to cut out, and maybe even there's stuff now, and I'm like, oh, I should have trimmed that. But then once it's a full-page ad, and that's the ad. <laughs> do, you, um, do you have any bits, do any bits spring to mind now, which are like when you're still in the middle of that process? Like, have you got a bit which you've been trying to make work for a few years, and you can't seem to crack at the moment? Um, you know, not... Sp- 
specifically the 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 I think the answer is yes and none come to mind. Yeah, okay. Uh, so let, yeah. That's it. Um, okay. So let's talk about the audience and your relationship to the audience. How, how has that developed over the course of your career? So I think when I first started out and I would do sort of strange things, you know, I maybe was like, oh, they like they don't get it or something like that. And then luckily, I mean, this is also probably by the time I was like 20 or 21, you know, I'd probably been doing it for three years or whatever it was. It was like, oh, it's absolutely my job to convey to the audience why I think ads for shapes are funny. You know, like it's not up to the, like they don't. Like it's not they don't they're not they they're not they don't have to come meet me like I have to figure out how to convey my concept in a funny way. Um, so 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 I think the difference is that I and obviously you could have you know good crowds bad crowds all that sort of thing. But I think that as a comedian the onus is on you to try to figure out how to get your idea across to the audience. Um, yeah. And were you? Were you taking your ideas in the early part of your career? Were you on the road? Were you a road at going to very f- sort of distant places and having to convince no. hard, hard to convince people? I mean, I did lots of weird, sad shows um, <laughs> throughout my career, but no, I wasn't like in no, not exactly. I, I though. By the t- I started touring probably in the like sort of early two thousands, opening for well, I would open for bands sometimes, which was very hard, uh, but also fun. And but when you're just trying to reach audiences, you're sort of doing whatever you can to to do it. Um, so I and in general, the I had also always found it easier to bring people to me than to bring me to people. So, like, there's a lot of clubs where, like, you start out as, like, an opener and then you're a middle act and then you're a headliner and there's, like, a system. And I was like, I'm just going to start my own thing and try to find other like-minded people to come to it and I'm going to fax press releases. This feels much simpler than convincing Devin that I'm very good at something. (laughs) When he is very unconvinced. That's a made-up person. There's no one named Devin. But I've definitely <laughs> had people be like, tell, just be like, I remember so, a club owner in New York being like, you know, I know you were on Conan and Mark Marin recommended you, but I just don't understand what you're doing. <laughs> and, and he was right for his, for the, for his space. Like, really probably didn't make sense for me there. Um, but... You know that that's uh, so, so so, and then it becomes sort of halfway where you like first get people to come to you, and then you go to people, and then like you know when I was opening, I toured opening for Stella, and then also Patton had me on Comedians of Comedy, mm. and then you're sort of being brought into th- these places by people who 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 actually you know in certain ways share sensibilities. Yes, and then even bands who like they'd be like, I think that people will like you. So how did you start opening for bands? Because like, no one else does that. That's, uh, I haven't um, heard many other acts talk about. Well, that. it was you know basically there uh, an agent, Robin Taylor, approached me. You know, I used to do this show that Todd Barry, John Benjamin, and David Cross hosted in New York, and I would perform on it a lot. And then this agent, uh, this great agent, approached me, and she was like, um, "Would you want to open for the Shins?" <laughs> This is like 2002 or something like that. And I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, sure, that sounds great. Um, And then the funny thing is, is I wasn't listed. And I went on at the time the shins were supposed to. (laughs) It was at Bowery Ballroom and everyone was like, 
what is going on? And I'm doing, I also luckily had brought, and, and I would do this, I would play videos live, like these sort of weird homemade videos. And that stuff would often, like people would rarely yell at a video. But in general, during that show, I remember being like a little hard, but then at some point saying to the audience, I can't believe I'm getting heckled by people who could get beat up by Bell and Sebastian. <laughs> and that really won people over. <laughs> and it was a little easier after that. Um... Yeah, and then from there, she started booking me, and then she put me on a tour with Modest Mouse in Florida, where I played, like, 12 cities with Modest Mouse. Um, And that was fun. And actually, something like, you know, we did 12 shows. I think there was one horrible show, like, meaning where, like, it was just not possible to perform. One show that wasn't good, but was fine. And then a bunch that were actually pretty fun, where people were, like, kind of nice. Were you you learning as you went? Were you adapting what you were doing to that environment? I mean, I had a, like, I, you know, by that point, meaning by that point where I had done the show at the Shins, also Yola Tango would, in general, have comics uh, do their shows, like, they had these eight shows, these eight Hanukkah shows that they do, and they would always book an opening band and a comedian. So I had done some of those shows, and in general, in New York, there was a lot of musicians doing like playing a few songs on a comedy show and comics doing stuff with musicians. So the, 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 that existed sort of in the world. And then um, by that point, I was like, okay, I think it should say comedian Eugene Merman because no one knows who I am and it's important for people to know it's comedy. And then I was like, yeah, I'm going to play a few videos and I'll do you know, stuff that I think will work best. Uh, and it should be like 20 minutes or so. More than 20 minutes is especially if people don't know who you are, is very unenjoyable for most music audiences. <laughs> but 20 or so is like, they're like, oh yeah, that was that was a fun experience. I mean, and also sometimes terrible. <laughs> for me. <laughs> and them, probably. <laughs> but you, the problem is that you can't do stand-up to a room of people talking, but you can definitely play loud music to a room full of people talking. So the problem was that comedy, you need an immediate reaction, which is enjoyment. <laughs> and it can be sometimes hard uh, to get that. <laughs> music audience i rarely i now sometimes do it with like friends like meaning like i'll do comedy with friends but i wouldn't like tour with the opening for a band now probably though i guess we'll find out when guns and roses asks me (laughs) bombing throughout europe (laughs) so just in terms of i say that but i was like oh this well i i toured this summer in the uk opening for concords actually yes i saw that yeah yeah i saw i managed to get a last minute ticket for concords in london and uh, because they were shooting it for hbo the whole thing was delayed i had my own gig to go to so you were the only bit that i saw (laughs) it was great i really enjoyed it yeah it was really fun and actually those shows were almost all in stadiums except for the one you saw and that was crazy where you're performing for like 10,000 people doing a joke and waiting for like the sound to reach you and like slowing things down and figuring out the right pacing of your weird jokes in a stadium. (laughs) And also for me, well, they have monitors. What's great about that is they have monitors. So all the weird stuff I hold up actually works out great because they can see it. And that's just not random music fans either. That's not only comedy fans, but people who know and love you from the concourse. Yeah, 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 exactly. So that's, but, but that would be an example of me, touring with a band sure but it's a comedy band on a tv show i was on sure sure so in terms of the learning over your career are there are there other comics are there peers that stand out to you as having uh contributed to your learning the people that you've learned stuff from like you on comedians of comedy did you learn from 
I don't know. I th- uh, I don't even know if that's. I think there's just comedians I you know adore and admire and think are really funny. Um, I don't know where I would if I like. I'm sure I learn stuff from them, but I don't know if that's how I necessarily think of it. Um, I mean, I think like yeah, it's true. Comedians. Of, I mean, I think with comedians of comedy, like Patton, you know, is just like a, a force of comedic nature. Um, and and I remember seeing him on a show at Irving Plaza where, like, the audience seemed tough and then he killed. And it was like, oh, I, I see. Like, if you're uh, unstoppable, <laughs> it will it will work out. Which is, I mean, often when people say, like, what, you know, what should you do to become a comedian? I'm like, I think if you can make people laugh for 45 minutes, like, you'll probably be fine. I think there's probably very few people who can get on stage, make people laugh for 45 minutes and don't become some version of a comedian do you feel unstoppable as a comic no ha- have you ever have you had i mean i've had sets environments had sets where i'm like that was really great that went very well and they all like me a lot <laughs> um yeah so i feel like i don't know but i also like there's comedians who will go and like do like seven sets in an evening and that sounds very unenjoyable to me uh, but those people uh, are Jim Gaffigan and are excellent joke writers, yeah. and like are very funny comedians. And yeah, yeah, they're you know. I also like don't like now. I live soon. I'll be living in Boston where I can go and do sets more regularly. But I also live in Massachusetts in Cape Cod, where there isn't a comedy club to drop in. So like I can't, and I have a two and a half year old, so I can't just go and do sets like I could before. Like I used to do probably you know, whatever it is, five, seven sets a week. But now I do it mostly like if I have a thing I'm trying for some reason. To move on to uh, one of the most uh, resonant and uh, difficult bits of the documentary, you we talked a little bit about your creating stand-up based on things you've experienced and things you've, uh, you know, like creating whimsy you know silly things and silly ideas and that you haven't spent a lot of time as a comic talking about emotion and talking about those kind of truer things yeah it it becomes clear throughout the documentary that your wife is very ill yes that's true and uh you there are some scenes of you at the 10th and final eugene merman comedy festival talking about that on stage could you just talk a bit about how that felt to experiment with that that type of material um so my, my wife has uh, stage four cancer. Um, and I thought, let's try to make this a bit. <laughs> uh, no, I, so she's had it for a long, uh, or she had cancer a while ago, went away, and then it came back. She's had it for the last five years. Um, and so for a long time, I thought about doing something about it because so much of, you know, because again, a lot of the things that become my stand-up are things that are part of my life in these different ways. Um, and so I, you know, and also I sort of have the feeling of, you know, if connecting with people. And, and even when I first tried some of the stuff, so what I did is I made sort of, and, I, and in, it's funny, in the movie, I don't, I only did the bit for the movie like 10 or so times to practice because, again, I live at Cape Cod. And so I would, like, go and try this stuff out in different places. Um, but the bit was basically I had created these kind of like greeting cards that you could give. And I think what I left didn't say in the movie that, that I sort of imagined giving to people either who are caregivers or people 
who um, have uh, cancer because a lot of times when you tell people they don't know what to say, and so I made these sort of greeting cards, and the greeting cards are just like they're just like shit, 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 fuck, <laughs> you know, I love you, like they're like they're what you're feeling, and so but to get to that, so then I but so I you know got on stage and I was like here's a thing. And then here's some, and here's this bit. And so it is, so like, there's like the shapes thing where I'm like, you can try 30, you know, shape jokes. <laughs> this is me trying like 10 different, like upsetting greeting card jokes <laughs> about this thing. And then like being like, okay, that one works. This one doesn't. And then you're sort of doing it in real time. And in the movie, there is this, you see a set that like, I was, I was very nervous because Katie was there and it like, it goes very medium to, to poorly. Um, but, but also kind of, eh, I mean, that's like, that's life. But then, you know, I, then I figured it out from that. So there's this set and I was like, oh, I think I'm not explaining it well enough. And then the next set, I figured out how to explain it much better. And then there's also some just jokes and stories that I tell that have to do with it also. Like I took, like our son, we had through a surrogate, so some of so I talk about that um, a little bit and that process. Um, yeah, so there's like more personal stuff in the movie and me trying a bit. And is and is there? Do you imagine going forward that you will having having tried personal stuff maybe for the first time? Is there a is is there is that kind of form part of a, a different direction for you, or is it something that you're just doing to cope with this particular challenge? I I mean again I. Part of it was also like, I wouldn't want to not do something on stage because I'm scared. So I think I was like, I should try it. Like, I should see how it is. Though the funny part is like, I was like, I should try it. And I should probably put it in the last festival as part of the movie. So it's like a very high stakes way of trying a joke that might not work. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, I don't know. I think what I would probably end up doing is definitely writing, like, essays and maybe trying to write a book or something like that. And in terms of stand-up, maybe, I I think, you know, in general, I also think, like, stand-up is trial and error. So you, so I tried that, and, you know, maybe at some point if I do a special, I'll figure out how to get those bits to work more clearer and then maybe add more jokes and stories. Um, You know, I I, I don't know. I guess the answer is probably. I don't think like my stand-up will become very personal all the time, um, but I think like I'll probably try things as I sort of always do. So um, how did you how did you learn to deal with hecklers, particularly at a? You rock know, show? I was recently thinking about this. I, I think you just it's that is sort of again trial and error uh, where you would. I remember you would just be sort of you would have to be very controlling on stage. And I remember actually after coming back from touring with opening for Modest Mouse, coming back to like a little fun show that I did every Wednesday in like the East Village and having this weird energy (laughs) where people were like, whoa. I was like, oh, right, I'm not fighting you guys. (laughs) I don't, why am I yelling at nice Jeff? Anyway, uh, (laughs) but I did remember recently, I was like, oh my God, I used to, and I remember doing this, this is probably the late 90s, I bought the game Perfection. And if somebody heckled me, I would turn it I would bring them on stage I would turn on perfection and I would make them try to do it as I yelled at them (laughs) and I was like this is what it's like (laughs) yeah so but again I would do so 
everything from just randomly making fun of a person. Um, because most hecklers, what you realize, much of it is people who are drunk. Like, you know, where uh, they're not, it's not someone who's like, you suck. I mean, they might, I guess at a rock show, they might be like, you're not good at this. <laughs> and, and they sometimes could have a point. Um <laughs> But yeah, it's a lot of it also is just all trial and error, meaning like if you do it for 20 years, you know, you'll you'll kind of you just sort of deal with it. And then eventually it it, it changes, like meaning like at a show you do where you're the person people are coming to see, you know, you, you rarely get heckled. But but there will absolutely be drunk people who are uh, who are like, I want to be a part of this. I'm very funny. <laughs> You're like, this is not good. And then sometimes they have to be thrown out. Um, I guess now that I think about it, I did a set with a friend where there was an incredibly drunk woman yelling throughout all the comics, and then I, most of my set was actually just talking to her, and then I think when the comic got on, the, he, she was thrown out because she was yelling throughout everyone's. You can't do that. That's unpleasant to watch. How did you get your start with Bob's Burgers? And- so Lauren Bouchard, who created the show, actually cast all of us with uh, us in mind for the different characters. And we spent maybe about two years recording this like eight-minute demo, going in and re-recording stuff and you know reading scripts and improvising and all this stuff. And then they made this little demo. Um, and that's, you know in certain ways, not uncommon that you would potentially be working on something that may or may not become a show and obviously it became a TV show. Um, but yeah, basically Lauren Bouchard had these ideas and, and for different characters and who he wanted to collaborate with on those characters and as a group. Um, and that's, and the second part of the question I think was, was which do you enjoy? Oh, which do I enjoy more? Uh, you know, I really enjoy both of them and I think part of it is that I actually, and I've, and this has always been the case. I really enjoy the different, things like meaning like I like that I do several different things and that also in certain ways is is related to I think a perpetual fear of everything falling apart and failing <laughs> where I'm like like if you could lose one thing you probably won't lose seven things <laughs> so it's like and and that I think like when you because because all because comedy is you know in a sense all you're freelance you know you're like forever um, even if you have work and everything seems fine. I was talking to somebody yesterday who's like been a writer on a TV show for like eight years and is like nervous about like what if like uh, they did something else and like you know and, and and like will there be other work? And so I feel like that feeling doesn't go away in in people <laughs> probably. Um, have you have you found a way to cope with that feeling of uh... yeah doing as much as you can. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> Sounds healthy. Uh, I mean, also, l- life changes in certain ways. And, like, um, yeah, I think at one point I tried to have lots of different things. Also that were really fun. Like, I used to do this podcast uh, that was really fun, this interview podcast for Audible uh, called Hold On. And that, you know, they sort of, um, I think I did three seasons of that. And I would totally do another thing like that because it was really enjoyable. Um, but a lot of it is actually just doing different things that I enjoy and also working with people. So like I, part of the, like, I like, like often when I tour, I'll bring a friend of mine, actually Derek Brown, who's this poet comedian, who's amazing. And I love touring with friends. You know, most of the stuff I've done in general 
even the, the movie and the festival, like it was with Julie, you know, it was really fun collaborating with Julie and all the different comedians and stuff. So, um, the thing I think I probably enjoy is collaboration and it's, which is funny because of stand up being such a, a solitary activity. Um, but I really enjoy the community of the solitary activity. Thank you. Great, great question. Uh, another one over there. Yeah, I mean, I would say to find communities of people who you like and get along with and find funny and just make things and do stuff, you know. I think, like, in a sense, it helped me that I started at a time when I think, like, stand-up had sort of crashed as an industry. So I was sort of like, there wasn't anything... There wasn't anything to lose exactly because there wasn't any like I it was much easier to like promote stuff and try to get people to come to a thing because people weren't coming to a thing anyway. <laughs> um, but but that was, you know, finding le- like people who I thought were funny and enjoyed working with. And I've basically always done that. Most of the things, if not all of the things I do are just projects with different friends that I like working with and being with and traveling with. In the, in the wake of that kind of crash when you started, was there a sense that there was no longer, if there had been a crash, was there a sense that you, you needed to do a, another job for money whilst... Oh, yeah, whilst I mean, when I started doing stand-up, yes, it's true that I think you used to maybe be able to be okay-ish and probably make a great living in 1989, and then when I started, you know, in 92, and this is also... I just got out of high school and then, you know, had years to do it in college where I didn't have to have a job, um, largely. And yeah, I mean, I definitely, like I worked at an ice cream parlor. I tempted fidelity, uh, where I answered phones. I have a sweet joke about that. And maybe my first album and my first Conan set. Um, so yeah, I had lots of random jobs. I worked at this very depressing law firm in New York for, for a while. Um, and that presumably yeah. gave you, I think something has been happening in the last few years in the UK, whereby there are so many people starting, what, at the same time as the industry is contracted, the amount of, you know, the, the gigs, there are fewer gigs available, there are far yeah. more comedians vying for those gigs. As a result, there's been a really interesting kind of breakout of sort of comedy weirdos who are doing it for the love of doing it with no expectation of being able to make it work financially. And that's actually been very creatively freeing. Right, and I, but I think you, I mean, actually, personally, I actually kind of like the pressure of making it, uh, to, I mean, I'm also a weirdo, so when I connect to an audience, I'm like, great, you know, uh, and I, I personally kind of like the pressure of it, of having to become commercially, like, uh, of having it be practically, uh, effective like meaning like of it becoming your job of it being a thing that you can do but yeah i i guess i would just say also like people are just competing with themselves like you're describe what you're describing sounds hard but also like when you know in the 90s it's not like there was any of the things that exist now now there's you know you could probably have a youtube channel where you could make money somehow um so lots of people do that i mean i don't know if they're comedians or not um, I'm talking like I've never heard of the internet anyway. <laughs> um, but, but what I mean is like, again, if you can get on stage and make people laugh for 45 minutes, you'll probably become a comedian. Most of the people I know who are comics are just people who never quit. Um, but also it's totally fine to quit <laughs> if you don't enjoy it. 
Is there is there any way that you could, if you were talking to Eugene from twenty years ago, is there any things, is there anything you could tell younger you that would speed up the process at which you learned and that which you developed, or is it just? I mean, I think I think there's no replacing experiences. So, like, yeah, could I probably give advice? Sure, but really, like, you just have to do stuff and fail and succeed in like as much as you can. And I mean, I do. I also have a very. I feel like I do have a very hopeful attitude. Meaning, I like again, like I think that basically, if you are a person who can get on stage and make people laugh, I do think that you will likely be a comedian. And I know that obviously everybody's live, like you know, lives change things. Or you're like, I'd like to have a family, and and I can't you know, abandon a baby and go <laughs> tell my weird jokes. Um, you know, if you're starting out or something, but. You know, I, I do in general think that I, I see everything as sort of puzzles to, to a degree to be solved. So, like, if you want to, which is how I probably always saw things, um, but there's probably advice I could give that would be helpful, but mostly it's just like, yeah, just do it as much as you can and probably don't stop if you don't have to. Thanks, man. <laughs> that ben. helpful? Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Eugene Thank you. Herman. Thanks so much. So that was Eugene. I just really enjoyed speaking to him. He's someone whose mind fizzes with imagination and warmth. And uh, my heart, I'm sure all of our hearts go out to Eugene's family. And uh, we wish them all the best. Thank you very much to Eugene for coming on the show. Thanks to Charlie Sotelo and Danny Sweet at South by Southwest. Thanks to everyone that teched for me and looked after me at The Hideout. We have one live show coming up uh, with, uh, with Matt Bronger, who was joyous. That's the last one from South by. That will be coming out in a couple of weeks. I think next week we're going to go for Chris Addison. Uh, thanks. <laughs> we're going to go for him. <laughs> and that one's been in the can for a couple of weeks. And I think it's time to release it. Very much looking forward to that. Um, coming up, other things. If you are going to be at the Secret Welsh Comedy Festival, Josh Widdicombe returns to this podcast some five years later uh, when, I mean, it's probably worth now revisiting that episode, as I will on my way home today, I think, um, revisiting the 2014 episode with Josh Widdicombe, uh, where plucky young Josh is sort of on his way, tiptoeing towards stardom. Well, now, of course, he's absolutely enormous, and he's coming back to the Secret Welsh Comedy Festival for a special live episode of ComCom, and we've already sold half the room, so jump on that. Uh, that should be a lot of fun uh, if you're going to be there. Um, also, I'm doing End Of in a frankly colossal room. You know the Secret Welsh Comedy Festival. I'm doing Iplas, the place where they used to have the... Uh, the bigger, what is it, 250? I mean, that is hubris, isn't it? But uh, it would be lovely if, it, uh, if, if there were two or three people there in that cavernous space. Um, I, think, I, I think actually it's, it's selling decently, but there is no reason at all not to plug it. That would, uh, God, what a homecoming hero I'd feel if I, was, if I could fill up that huge space. So uh, please uh, jump on board that. There's so many things to choose from at the Secret Welsh Comedy Festival, but if you fancy being... I sort of feel like that's that's one of the, the British equivalents of the Eugene Merman Comedy Festival. You know, the, the, the thing that we talked about in this episode with um, part of the documentary showed, like, one of the things you could... Like, a walk-by thing was a bouncy castle with a therapist inside, and that's exactly the sort of crazy bullshit you expect to find uh, in McCuncliffe. So... Um, that's that for now. Um, thank you to Nathan Wood for editing and uploading the show. 
podcast consultant was Peter Dobbing. Uh, thanks also to Rob Smouten for the music. And uh, very excited I'm going to go and see uh, Rob play with one of his many bands, the band Hot Chip, uh, this uh, Saturday. So uh, I will tell you all about that. Will I? <laughs> well, there's no, that's not a thing I do on the podcast, is it? I tell you all about a gig I've been to. I'm just so excited, deliriously excited. Me and my wife are going to go and see Hot Chip, one of our favourite bands, and uh, we are going to go and see that on a Saturday night instead of me doing a gig. So uh, can't wait for that. And also thank you uh, to my mother-in-law, Alan, who is uh, coming to look after the bands. Right, that's enough personal business. Um, a little post-amble coming right at you in just a moment. Uh, but for now, thanks for listening. Chris Addison next week, Matt Bronger the week after that, and a very special, if you're a pod fan, there's someone very exciting coming up that I'm going to record an interview with next Thursday. So that should be out pretty soon. All right, I shall, I shall leave that mysterious for now. I'll post-amble at you in a second. Um, but for now, that concludes the podcast. So every so often, not not often, often, sort of a perfect amount of time, maybe once every two months, I will be afforded the opportunity through work to stay in a nice hotel. No, those numbers are wrong. Probably once every five or six weeks I get to stay at a hotel, which is... You know, that's how you know you're an old comedian, is when the young comedians go out for a nice drink and the old comedians go, I've got children, I'm going to go and sleep for eight hours, it's going to be incredible. But every so often, maybe every six months or so, I get to stay in a ridiculous hotel, like uh, like a crazy five-star hotel. This gig I was doing yesterday for these uh, awards, I stayed in a hotel. I stayed in the worst, which is, uh, I remember this being built uh, long in the tooth. Me, I, I remember when they changed the direction of the roundabout and everyone got confused and kept crashing. And it's really funny because... Like, who else is staying here? The mega rich. Who am I? Some chancer. And it's really funny just being in the in the in the lift, which honestly I don't think it's Dame Judy Dench, but it sounds like her, and I wouldn't have put it past them to record her voice to use in I mean, you know, pay her to record her voice uh, to uh, so the lift so you feel like M off James Bond is <laughs> telling you that you can go up or down. Uh, it, it's this sort of James Bond is <laughs> telling you that you can go up or down. Uh, it, it's this sort of ludicrously opulent uh, affair. And um, I always think whenever I get the chance to stay somewhere glorious, because part of you just kind of go, wow, this, this is nice. Hey, I'm going up in the world. Look at me, mum. And you go, well, I, I'm not, am I? <laughs> this is very temporary. And I'm here on the basis of um, my brief flirtation with uh, the world of the very successful. Uh, it's not like I'm... Um, I remember interviewing a, a very famous comedian for the podcast and meeting them at their hotel and thinking, hellfire, this is a run-of-the-mill uh, tour hotel for you. I'm not in that position just yet. But um, it always makes me laugh because I think, look, at the end of the day, you're, um, it's just a place, isn't it? <laughs> I, think, I don't think I'm cut out for wealth um, because... There's a bit of a thing broken on the room or there's a bit of colking in the bathroom that's just sticking up a little bit. Or or um, let's bleep the name of the hotel so I can slag it off. I don't mean to slag it off. My point is I'm walking around now. It is beautiful and luxuriant. And look, if I go in the bathroom, you can hear how my voice changes. 
But even in this beautiful, luxuriant hotel, you can't quite get your head comfy when you're in the bath because it has to be designed for everyone. So unless a thing is designed for you perfectly, that's probably the mega rich, the, the billionaires. They probably have hotels built for their, their exact specifications. Do you know what I mean? No matter how... I think that's comforting. No matter how nice your hotel, the breakfast will always be a little bit rubbish, right? And I'm not counting the six-star hotels I stayed in once in, uh, in Dubai years ago, which were preposterous. But even then, occasionally you get a dirty fork. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The opulence available to you and the, the rich people I share the lift with, and I'm looking at them thinking, oh my God. I noticed last night there was a couple with a kid in the lift and um, they... Like, they're just wearing clothes. Yeah, they're nicer clothes, but they're just clothes. What's the point in... It's security, isn't it? That's why people want money. Anyway, <laughs> I was just... The, you know, like, how nice can trainers get? If you're a billionaire, if you're a, or a, a multimillionaire, the sort of person who can casually bring the family to London and stay in a glorious five-star hotel, um, does that... Like, you still... You can only get trainers that are yay nice. You know what I mean? You can't get... What do you want? Nike. I mean, I'll never buy Nike stuff, but... You know, uh, the sort of trainers that are like, these are the absolute best, like $500 trainers. Yeah, I've converted it to dollars, which is worth less than pounds, isn't it? Not just. But, you know, for the idea of kind of rap star opulence, you, you spend, what, are you going to spend £1,000? Are you going to spend £10,000 on your trainers? They're just trainers, aren't they? I, I think I used to feel that very strongly when I was a, uh, a younger person. And then I probably, as I started to have to pay bills and pay my own way, I probably got a bit caught up in going, oh, no, loads of money would be good. But it's just money, isn't it? You know, I mean, I, I'm talking super wealth here. I'm by no means trying to uh, convince you not to keep supporting <laughs> this podcast because I do. It's just money, isn't it? But I, I do need it. But what I don't need is millions and millions like the people who share this hotel with me because ultimately, what's my point here? Ultimately, they're just wearing shoes. <laughs> they're just shoes, right? They still have to go to the loo like everyone else. They still have to, like, look, at, I'm just looking now. There's um, a glorious kind of, it's not even glorious. It's just posh. There's a wall. It's like a mirrored wall with a picture of a lady's face and some Latin writing written over it. It's not even particularly classy. It's just designed to make you think, yes, I am rich in this, in this hotel room. You know, the carpet is just carpet. The bed's just a bed. You know, if anything... It was a little firm. <laughs> if anything, the mattress was a little firm. I once stayed, when I stayed in um, in uh, Dubai, I stayed in literally a six-star hotel. It had multiple, every time you went back to the room, it had been tweaked and changed and adjusted. Fresh chocolates on the pillow, mood lighting. They transformed a sort of central wall around the bathroom within the room, within like the suite. It was glorious. Next door, building site. Couldn't get a wink of sleep. <laughs> you rang down and go... Hi. I mean, I'm not paying for this room, but if I was paying, what is it, £2,000 a night for this room, I'd be a little peeved that there was a building site and they say, yeah, but there's nothing we can do because it's just ambient noise outside. Imagine, ha <laughs> ha, imagine paying ten grand for a week in a hotel in Dubai and then there's a building site next to your six-star hotel. You just, and you know, or or any kind of, like you pay a huge amount of money, you know, you see the biggest billionaire in the world getting, you know, Bezos. What is he? Is he the, what has he got, 140 billion? And he's just got divorced and his missus is taking a quarter of it. It's a quarter of it. God. But he still gets a cough. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Every so often. Every so often he's looking forward to a thing and it rains. 
God, I, I, I hope there continue to be these levelling factors and we don't manage to solve the weather, coughs and colking issues in bathrooms permanently because I think the mega-rich need those to remind them that they're just us. <laughs> That'll do. Bye for now. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.